You have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and open up to the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. This summer, um, as we've had that incredible walk-up music every week, um, uh, we have been looking at the minor prophets. Um, so we spent the summer in the minors, and today we are at our, our closing time. Our, this is our, our 12th minor prophet, the last one in the Old Testament. Um, and so today, that means that we've reached the end of summer. Uh, so students, kids, I'm sure that you're groaning. Parents, uh, you can rejoice with me later. Okay, as you, as you turn to Malachi, I just want to give us a little bit of insight and background before we kind of dive in uh, this morning. Uh, Malachi is a prophet, um, and we know that uh, very little about Malachi. We don't know who his dad was. We don't know a lot about the person Malachi. We do know that the word Malachi means my messenger, but that's really about it. Uh, what we do know about the book of Malachi is that he is prophesying in the days of Nehemiah. And so the book of Nehemiah is the historical backdrop for what the word of the Lord is giving to the people in the days of Nehemiah. So hopefully that makes sense. So if we look at some of the history of Nehemiah, I think it will do us well. So in 444 BC, Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem and he begins to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Right, And so we have the, the temple has been uh, built. They've had some persecution here and there. Nehemiah comes as the governor. They rebuild the walls. And that's pretty much the first seven chapters of Nehemiah. Then in chapter 8, we have this incredible worship service. The book is open. It's read before the people. They're worshiping. They're confessing sin. They're, they're seeing God for who he is. And they're seeing themselves for who they are. They're experiencing mercy. It's an incredible time. Then Nehemiah chapter 9, there's this, it's pretty much a prayer and confession and a celebration of the mercy of God. And at the end of that chapter, they write this. They say, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So they put in writing, like, we're covenanting again to the Lord. Here are the things that we're going to not do, and here are the things that we're going to do. And in Nehemiah 10, they kind of tell us, like, we're not going to, uh, we're going to honor God with our marriage. We're not going to intermarry. Uh, we're going to honor God on the Sabbath day. We're not going to offer uh, illegitimate offerings, okay? These are the things that they're committing to. And then they, they kind of spend this uh, uh, time worshiping again in Nehemiah 12. And then you get to the last chapter of Nehemiah. Nehemiah has gone away for a little bit. He comes back. And what have they done? They've broken every single one of the covenants, the commitments that they had made, right? And I mean, Nehemiah, he is furious. And Nehemiah says this in verse 25 of chapter 13. He says, I confronted them and I cursed them and I beat some of the men and I pulled out their hair. I mean, whoa, Nehemiah ain't playing around, Right? This is actually why I don't have any hair, because Scott, he's been holding me accountable. I'm just kidding. But listen, in all seriousness, this is the time. This is what's happening when Malachi prophesies to these people. The culture of that time is characterized by this, this uh, breaking of this covenant. This, they, they have this religious apathy, this religious skepticism. 
Their morality is eroding away. Their marriages are corrupt. There's divorce, which is leading to children's hearts being divided. The leaders, the government, and the priests, they're inept. They're, they're, they're corrupt, or they're even both. This is the reality of the conditions of the people of the day when Malachi prophesies. And I would argue that this is much of the culture that we live in here today in 2023. So in just 55 verses, God gives his message to the people. 47 of those are are first person from God, which is significant because after these words, we have 400 plus years of silence from God in redemptive history. And the crux of the message here is in chapter 3, verse 7. It says, From the days of your father you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And then you get the last, the very last words of the book that are going to echo from generation to generation amidst the silence of God. He says, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Church, you see the people had returned to the land, they had returned to the temple, to their religious activity, but they had not returned to God himself. I want you to go back in your memories for a second to the first time that you remember vividly Jesus really gripping your heart. You remember that time? Can you like picture it? Maybe it's a vivid memory of you surrendering your life to Jesus. Others of you guys, you may be like me. When I was eight years old, I gave my life to Christ with this childlike faith. I I remember that. I believe it was true. I believe it was genuine. But man, the first time that I can put myself in the room was when I was 13 years old. And I know that Jesus was gripping my heart. I was at a student conference. It was a weekend. There was probably a thousand people in the room. And I felt like I was the only person there. We're singing the song, Here I Am, to worship. And the words that I'm singing is, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. And God gripped my heart in that moment. Do you remember that time in your life? Can you go back to that? If you can't, maybe today is the day that Jesus is going to grip your heart for the first time. Others of you, if you do, and you feel anything like me, you may be saying, man, I thought that my spiritual walk would be a little bit better by now. Man, I thought I wouldn't be dealing with that sin in that way anymore. Man, I thought that, man, I I just, it's been decades, it's been years since I felt God that way. And so the message that God had for the people through me and through Malachi is the, is the same message that he has for us this morning. Return to me. Let's pray. God, I pray, Father, that you would, through your word, speak to us this morning. God, show us. God, grip our hearts this morning. 
God, that if there's anything keeping us from surrender from, from you, Father, that we would turn and return to you. Father, let your word be lifted high this morning. Hide me behind your cross. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Malachi, we see God use um, this specific way of communicating to his people. The book has six speeches or uh, disputes that God has with the people of Israel. And so these six disputes, they're going to drive us toward how and why we are to return to God. Now listen to this. Ultimately, returning to God means worshiping him rightly. Worship is an attitude of the heart. It's a heart posture of humility that drives us to a response of praise. Warren Wearsby gives a great little succinct definition of worship. He says, worship is the believer's response of all that they are, their mind, emotions, will, and body, to what God is and says and does. So let's look to Malachi to see how we must return to the Lord with true worship. If you're taking notes, the first point today is true worshipers remember God's love. The first dispute comes right at the top in Malachi chapter 1 verses 2 through 5. There's this dispute. The very first words that God says in this book, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals in the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is this first dispute. God laying before them, I have loved you. And them with this seeping pride. How have you loved us? How? As if to say, you haven't loved us. And then God tells them, look back, look all the way back, 15, 16 generations upon Jacob and Esau. Jacob wasn't the one that was going to get the blessing. Esau was. But I blessed Jacob, and because I blessed Jacob and gave him my blessing, you are now blessed. You are now the chosen people. It wasn't because Jacob was better. It was because God deemed it to be. But if this is how the Jews feel, it's no wonder that as we go through Malachi today, that, there's, that we're going to see them fall short of God's way over and over and over again. But I don't want us to miss this. I have loved you. Wow. That love, it's a perfect present tense. As if to say, I have loved you. I love you right now. I will always love you forever and ever. It's perfectly present. It's ongoing. It's continuous action that God is placing upon the people. So don't miss this. God says, I have loved you. He doesn't show up and he doesn't say, here's a list of all the things that I need you to do to get right and then I'll love you. That's not how God works. 
Matt Chandler said it this way. He said, God never asks of you before he lays his love on top of you. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. Romans 5, 8, 9 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood. God is the one who did this. He is the one that moved toward us. He is the one that loved us first while we were weak, while you were a sinner, while you were far off, while you were an enemy of his, you were justified, not by anything that you did, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the truth. This is the gospel. It wasn't about you going to church or living the right way. You were made right with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. So listen, the times that we begin to stop loving God is the time that we begin to wonder whether God really loves us. Then our worship of God becomes only something that's formal. It becomes flippant. It becomes superficial. Not true and genuine worship. This is why Paul says to Timothy, he says that in the days there's going to be times of difficulty. There's people, they're going to be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, and all of these other things. And then he says this, he says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Don't deny the power of the Holy Spirit today. You see, true worshipers actively see and remember God's love continuously, which roots them in the truth of the gospel and empowers their lives by the Spirit. Second point today is that true worshipers live God's way. This means right out the gate, they don't live their own way. They don't do what's right in their own eyes. They do what God says. That's what true worshipers do. They obey because God has commanded them to. We're going to skip dispute two for just a moment. Dispute three in this book is raised in Malachi chapter two, verses 10 through 16. I'm not going to read all of that, but in verse 11, God says to them, he says, Judah has been faithless. You've been faithless. You've profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. How have they done this? They've married daughters of a foreign land. That covenant, we're not going to intermarry. We're not going to uh, marry pagan peoples. They've broken that. And so God doesn't accept your offering. And then in verse 13, it says, You also, you cover my altar with tears. You weep and you groan because I don't accept your offering. You see, the people object. They say, why, why don't you accept my offering, God? I'm doing exactly what you told me to do. I'm offering things. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm giving you something. He says, I don't accept it because you've been unfaithful to your wife. You've broken your marriage covenant and you've divorced. There's going to be a few things under this living God's way, that true worshipers live God's way. Living God's way means submitting to God's way in marriage. God doesn't share his throne in your life, not even with a spouse. This means... God cares about who you marry. Young person, not married. God cares about who you marry. 
someone that is surrendered to Jesus like you are, running at the same pace in the same direction. Do not compromise on this. God cares about it. And he also cares that you remain faithful in your marriage. Be faithful. Fight for your marriage. It matters. Marriage is the picture of the gospel that God uses to show the world the beautiful relationship between Christ and his church. Be faithful in your marriage. Dispute number four is raised in Malachi 2, verse 17, through Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. In verse 17, um, there's, this, uh, there's this accusation that God kind of brings upon them, this declaration. He says, you have wearied me. You've wearied the Lord with your words. And they kind of come back at again, again at God. Every time they're going to come back at him and object to what he says. How have we wearied you? How have we wearied you? It seems like, God, you delight in people that are doing evil. I thought you were a God of justice. It doesn't seem that way. That's what the people are saying back to God. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, God begins his answer to this objection. And he says this. He says, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God says, let me tell you about the true delight that's going to come. First of all, I'm gonna send a messenger that's gonna prepare the way for him. His name's gonna be John the Baptist. We know that. The messenger, the one that's going to come before I send my messenger, that's at the first part of 3-1. And then he says that there's, he's going to prepare the way for the Lord that's going to come to the temple. The messenger of the covenant. Guess who that is? His name's Jesus. He is the one. He is the Messiah that's going to come. He is the one that true delight will come through. And what's he like? In verses 2 through 5, we see what he's like. Verses two through four say that he is a refiner. He's a refiner. He's gonna come, he's gonna purify the people, purify the priesthood. What does a refiner do? He holds things in the fire, brings it out to, to, to take out all of the impurities that are in it. That's what God does with us. You feel like you're in the fire right now? You feel like you're suffering or going through hardship or difficulty. Be sure that the God of the universe is the one that's holding you. He is the one that is holding you in that, sanctifying you in that. The refining is good. Because in verse 5, he says, I'm also going to be a swift and quick judge. I'm going to refine I'm going to refine the priesthood. I'm going to refine those that follow me, and I'm going to judge those swiftly. He says that there are those committing adultery, and those are swearing falsely, those that are oppressing people. Listen, church, if you're a Christian, and you are committing adultery or lying and cheating people out of their wages, oppressing the vulnerable to make you look good, don't fool yourself into thinking that you are worshiping God just because you come to church and sing some songs. God says you're not. 
1 John 4, 20 says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. See, living God's way means loving people and loving justice because God is a God of justice. It means all people, the least of these kind of people. It means loving all justice, all things that are right. Church, the horizontal relationships that you have with people will be a testimony for or against the vertical relationship that you have with God. Disputes 2 and 5, as we continue in Malachi, raise the disputes of what they're offering to the Lord and their tithes. If you look at dispute 2, it's in chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 9, um, where God says the people have despised his name. And the people are like, how have we despised your name? What are you even talking about, God? It says, you have polluted the food on my altar. What are you talking, God, how have we polluted your altar? How have we polluted your table? God's answer, you bring sick, lame, leftover sacrifices. You wouldn't even give that to your governor, yet you give that to me? And then you want my favor? You're trying to butter me up and then ask of me with your lame, sick, disgusting leftover sacrifices? When I say I want your best and your first, my name is to be great. My name is going to be great among the nations. That's what he says. Oh, I wish that there were some of you that would shut the temple doors. Stop bringing me offerings that are vain out of ritual. Listen, church. Let's not be like that. Let's not come into these doors, go through the motions of the checklist of Sunday, and walk out. And we've really just given a vain, worthless offering to the Lord. Because it's just an external expression and it's not really a heart posture. Dispute five is similar. It's where we see kind of the main message here, this return to me. But the people object. They say, how can we return to you, God? How, how can we do that? It's this tone of how can we return to you because we never left? We've been doing everything that you said we're supposed to do. And God follows that up with one way to return to him as a true worshiper living his way. He says, will man rob God? And again, they object. How have we robbed you? We haven't robbed you. And God answers, you don't tithe. You don't contribute. And this is one area that God says, test me. It's not a good thing to test God, but God says here in chapter 3, if you look at verse 10 through 12, he says, test me, try me on this. See if I won't open the floodgates of heaven and bless you. Trust me. You see, true worshipers living God's way give their best, not their leftovers. They give God everything. Everything is available to him. 
You see, church, the tithe is simply the representation of you saying to God, I trust you. If you say you trust him with your life and with your eternity, yet you don't trust him with your bank account, is he actually the Lord? He certainly isn't the Lord of all. Are you in his kingdom that he owns? Or is he just a small part of your kingdom? See, Romans 12 verse 1 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. You see, the value of what you give in worship determines the worth you place on the object of your worship. The value you give determines what you think about the one you're worshiping. Not monetary value, heart posture value. Dispute number six is seen in Malachi 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 3. God says in chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Again, this objection. How have our words been harsh against you, God? Again, this tone of arrogance and pride, not of humility. God says that they're saying that they're serving God in vain. What we're doing, we're, we're serving you, and it seems like we're just doing it in vain. It's no profit to us. All these people out here, they're doing evil and it seems like they're prospering and we're serving you and we don't have anything. Have you ever felt like that? Gosh, they're, they're wicked out there, but look at all they have. I'm trying to serve God over here. What has he given me? Check your heart. Guys, this is a dangerous spot to be in. I think that this is what this looks like for us today. God, I go to church. I give. I read the Bible sometimes. I pray over most all of my food before I eat it. How come you aren't answering this prayer in my life? How come you aren't blessing this business that I'm, I'm, I'm working on? How come you aren't fixing the hardship in my life? Church, the question is, do you worship God because he is worthy or because of something he can give you? Are you a Christian or are you just doing Christian things? Like, are you actually following Jesus with your life? If you think that because you complete your spiritual checklist that God should bless you, or answer your prayer in some certain way, the truth of the matter is you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping yourself. True worshipers living God's way serve him in obedience for his glory because he is worthy. There was a lot under point two. Point three. True worshipers approach God with reverence. This means they don't approach him flippantly. 
God isn't the big guy upstairs. He isn't your homie. He's not your boy. He's not one of your peeps. God is holy. He's mighty. He's sovereign. He's worthy. He's the great I am. He's the alpha. He's the omega. That's who God is. He's the master of the universe. And we are to fear him. We are to be in awe of him. It's why Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this is how dispute two, way back in chapter one, starts. And it's actually the dispute that God brings up in every single one. He says this in chapter one, verse six. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Then he goes on to rebuke the priests and the people for not bringing their best, their offerings. This is the primary dispute that God has with the people throughout Malachi. Listen to these numbers. Remember, just 55 short verses. God says, I am the Lord of hosts 24 times. This means he is the God of the army of angels. He is our father, but not just our father. He is the master, but not just the master. I am the commander and chief, the divine general of the angelic armies. That is who I am. 24 times. He invokes this concept of you fear, you should honor, you should be in awe 14 times. Of what? My name. He says, my name, 12 times. My name. I'm the Lord of hosts. My name. I think God cares about how we approach him. He cares about it in a manner of reverence and awe. It's a healthy fear. Josh, what does that look like? Well, let me just tell you from the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis says this. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. This is the one that we awe and reverence and fear. He is the king. He is mighty and he is good. God, so what happens when I do come in fear and reverence and I approach you in the correct manner? Look at chapter 3, verse 16. It says this. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. 
They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. Then those who feared the Lord, what did they do? They spoke to one another. Church, this is part of why we gather. Number one, so that we realize you're not alone in this. You're trying to fight this battle. It's difficult. It's a struggle. You're not alone. Open your mouth. Talk to one another. You have others to talk to. It's why we do life groups. It's why we do small groups. So that we can know one another. So that we have a place to confess our sins in a place that is is loving. And we can spur one another on to godliness. And here's what happens. God pays attention to them. He pays attention to you. He hears your prayers. He sees your actions. He writes them in this book of remembrance. He remembers you. Approach God with reverence. He doesn't just do that, but you know what he calls you? He says, you are mine. You're my treasured possession. And you'll be saved. You'll be spared. Because I'm going to divide the righteous from the wicked, the ones who serve me from the ones who don't. And how will this salvation come? Look at chapter four, verses one and two. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root or branch. That's what's coming at the end. And then verse two says, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Salvation. For those who fear and reverence God, place him in his right manner, worship him correctly, the son of righteousness will rise. Listen to me. For centuries, theologians, they have viewed this beautiful, poetic picture, this son of righteousness rising as Jesus Christ, the righteous Messiah. He was the one that was going to come. Not because the English word son and son sound the same. Not because S-U-N and S-O-N are, are similar. No, because the sun brings light. Listen to what John the Baptist's dad says in Luke 1. Zechariah, he's been, he hasn't been able to talk for a while. John the Baptist is born and then he says this. He says, you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord... Prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. As if to say, the sun is rising. Those words that have been echoing for generation and generation and generation, 
the words of, of fear of potential destruction, but a promised Messiah, the sun of righteousness is rising. And the sun brings light to darkness, and Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is going to light up the dark spaces of your life. Turn to him. It's a son of righteousness. Jesus takes all things that are broken and he reconciles them. He makes things right. He reconciles man and God. Jesus redeems and restores and he judges the wicked. He will make all things right. There's gonna be healing in his wings. It's the reference of these beaming rays of sun that have these healing properties. But if you look a little bit deeper, that word wings in the Hebrew is the word kanaf. And it can be like animal wings. And guess what? It can also be the edge or the fringe of a garment. And in Matthew chapter nine, Jesus comes and a woman desperate bleeding for 12 years, reaches out to just touch the edge, the hem of Jesus' garment, because she believes if she could just touch that edge, she could be healed. And Jesus says, by your faith, you have been healed. Jesus comes with healing in his wings, in the fringe of his garment. In the days of the sun, it says, we're going to go out leaping like calves from the stall. We're going to break out of the stall. Why? Because Jesus brings freedom from bondage. And we're going to leap with joy. That's what leaping calves are doing. I've never seen it because I'm a city boy. But like Jesus brings about joy within us. Not just walking or running, but leaping. Those in Jesus should have this leaping joy in them. Some of you guys are like, I don't feel that way at all, though. I'm, I'm not filled with that leaping. I don't, I don't want to leap with joy. I'm not ready to leap for Jesus' name. Freedom is required to experience leaping. You can't leap inside the bondage of the stall. Maybe you aren't leaping with joy in Jesus because today you need to do exactly what God has said. Return to me. Just as in the days of Malachi it is today. They were awaiting a Messiah to come, a king to bring restoration and freedom and healing and salvation. And we know that Messiah. His name is Jesus. He defeated sin and death on a cross. And guess what? We are awaiting him again. He is coming back. And when the sky splits open and he returns, he will be coming once and for all to separate the true worshipers, the one who serve him from the wicked. So the message from the Lord today is the same. Return to me. For you today, that may actually mean turning to Jesus for the first time. Seeing and believing in the one that has loved you, the one that has died for you, the one that offers you healing and freedom and joy in this life through a relationship with him, turn to him right now. My guess is though that the word return is the one most piercing this morning. Church, God can grip your heart anew just like he did in the days past. 
return in reverence to a holy, righteous, awe-inspiring God who, as the mighty king of the universe, has placed his love upon you. See, believe, remember, and rest in his love. You don't go do something to earn his favor. You haven't discredited what he did on the cross because of your current sin. You're not better at sin than Jesus is at grace. Jesus knew exactly what he was buying when he went to the cross. Return to him. True worshipers. True worshipers. They remember God's love. They receive his love. They live God's way. And they approach him with the reverence that he is due. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us, God, to, as Joel says, rend our hearts, not just our garments. God, that we wouldn't just go through the motions of the external, God, but that you would get to the depths of our heart, that our worship would be true and genuine, that it would be real, that you would posture our heart with humility before a holy and a reverent God right now. God, if we need to confess sin, that we would do it. God, that if we need to return to you in in how we uh, even think about you, in the way that we view ourselves because of the love that you've placed upon us. God, let it be so right now that we would return to you, not just in external action, God, but in heart. In heart. And Father, if there's anybody in here that has never turned to you in the first place, God, I pray that they would see and believe in your son, Jesus the one who died on the cross in their place and defeated sin and death and was raised back to life and that they can have freedom and healing and joy in his name this morning. I pray this in your precious and holy name.